Today I have the pleasure of introducing our speaker for this morning. His name is Will Anderson. Will has been on staff at Southlands Church and currently serves as senior editor at Waterbrook Multnomah Press, which is a Christian book publisher. Will has an MA from Talbot School of Theology and is a contributor to the Gospel Coalition. He and his wife, Emily, live with their two children in Orange, California. Will has been a part of the pastor's prayer group that meets monthly here in the city, and Pastor Craig scheduled Will because of his faithfulness and perspective that God is at work in our city and its surrounding communities. So please welcome Will Anderson. Thanks, man. Well, good morning, Taft Avenue. How are we this morning? Good. This is a huge space. I wasn't expecting the balcony. Uh, there's one person up there. Hello, my friend. What is your name? Hi, Scott. If anyone's wondering, Scott's up there. So I love that you're just doing your own thing up there, man. That's cool. Um, so yeah, as Andrew mentioned, Emily and I have two kids. This is my wife, Emily, sitting right there in the front row. Um, she is pregnant with our third. And so I thought it would be fun uh, to uh, give you a little backstory. So for our first two kids, we found out the gender, as many parents today do. On the third, Emily said, let's wait to find out. And I wasn't on board at first, but she convinced me. And so we, uh, we will find out the day of, whether it's a boy or a girl. But I wanted to pull you, uh, the people of Taft Avenue, as to what you think it will be. So, boy, raise your hand high. Who says boy? Okay. It's not a strong showing for the boys. All right, girl, hands high. <laughs> All right, I like, I like the energy of this, this uh, section right there. All right, we'll find out. We'll let you know at some point. I'll come back. Well, it's good to be with you. We live about a mile down the road, just down Tustin, and so we are neighbors, and uh, Craig is a newer friend of mine, but I'm just very grateful that he um, invited me to speak and, and share God's word with you this morning. So I want to begin this morning by um, telling you about a commercial for the streaming service Hulu. And if you don't have Hulu, Hulu is where you can go to, to watch TV shows and movies. And uh, this commercial, Hulu teamed up with the eyedrop company Visine, which seems like an odd pairing. And, and it, it showed this guy who's watching TV shows on his phone everywhere he goes. He's watching with his friends. He's watching at restaurants. And then finally, he's on his couch and I'll show you a picture of him on the screen. And he's dropping the Visine eye drops into his eye. And the narrator says this. This is it. This is go time. This is your time to chill. And he drops in another thing of Visine. Come on, just one more episode. This is your moment. Nothing stands between you and your Hulu. You got Visine. Now just pause that scene for a second. That is a picture of our world. We do not know how to rest. It used to be the fact that after a long work week, you would say, I'm so tired. But today we are so surrounded by endless entertainment that we actually have to medicate ourselves to rest well, even when we're playing, both work in play in the modern world are exhausting. And no wonder we're tired all the time. As author Neil Postman puts it so well, not only do we work ourselves to the bone, 
but we also amuse ourselves to death. And so here's just a fun experiment to try this week. Every time you ask someone how they are, just listen for them to say that they're either tired or busy. It doesn't matter if you're talking to a college student who's working two jobs with a full load or a retired person. Across all ages, all demographics, all backgrounds, you're going to hear people say, I'm tired and I'm busy. And in Matthew chapter 11, where we're going to be this morning, Jesus talks about something he calls rest for your soul. And so I want to ask you, how is your soul these days? Have you experienced the kind of rest that Jesus says his disciples will experience? Imagine for a second that for the next week, someone just followed you around 24-7, and they just took notes on your life. At the end of that week, when they give you that report, what would it say? Would that person say, man, this person follows Jesus in a way that brings them peace and there's just this calmness about them, this restfulness? Or would they say, I couldn't really tell the difference. They were tired, anxious, worried, fatigued, short-tempered, overcommitted, burdened. And I'm not sure that I would want that report. I don't know if I would want to see what's in it. How about you? Do you know how to rest? Do you know how to rest? And Jesus is going to show us how it's possible as we walk with him. Let's join him in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 28. Jesus says this, Hear the words of of our Savior speaking to you and I. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is God's word. So we're going to look at three things this morning. One is the big lie about rest. Secondly, what rest is. And then lastly, how to rest. So we'll start with the big lie about rest. Um, Last October, we took a family vacation to Hawaii. It's my first time there. And let me tell you, with two young kids, a one-year-old and a three-year-old at the time, going to paradise with two young kids, it ain't no honeymoon. And so we're sitting there on the sand, not lounging, not just laying out in the sun, but trying to comfort our children who are both screaming because they're terrified of all the waves. We're trying to keep our one-year-old son from eating his weight in sand. And the whole trip is just running around, wrangling kids, comforting kids, feeding our kids, napping our kids. And we loved the trip. It was awesome. But it was not exactly relaxing. So my, my wonderful wife got like one window every day where she could like, the kids were napping and she could go just sit by the ocean. So the last day of the vacation, we... Uh, we you know, jump in the rental car, we drive an hour or two, we take the flight back, and at the very end of the day, we are walking off the plane in LAX, and the airline worker says, he sees us with our double stroller, just kind of like limping our way off the plane, he's like, hey, you have the second longest walk back to baggage claim at all of LAX. 
And I was like, oh, really? Where, well, where's the longest walk? And he's like, oh, it's just right over there. So basically, we had the longest walk almost possible at LAX. And by the time we get home and we get in the car, um, we're just exhausted. We walk in the door, and by that point, um, a day in the office the next day felt like a vacation from the vacation. And so to all the parents in the room, can I get a witness that vacations with kids are tiring? Anybody? Any grandparents in the room? Vacations with your grandkids, right? Because they just get pawned off on you all the time. That's just how it works. That's what we do with our kids too. Um, singles in the room, have you ever gone on this amazing trip with your friends and you have a, a great time and then you get back and it's your first day back to school or work and you are just exhausted? It's like this thing that was supposed to replenish you just took every last bit of energy you had. So here is the big lie about rest that is all around us. It's this. The lie is that the secret to rest is to work less and to play more. So we think, well, if I just work less hours, if I just book more vacations, if I just unwind with Netflix, if I get out on the golf course more, if only I can make it to retirement. And you know what's funny? My dad retired about 10 years ago, and he says the the weird thing to me about it is that my days are so full. Anyone feel that? I just, I couldn't wait to be done with work because I thought I'd have all this space and, and all that time just gets consumed with other things. And we end up tired either way. And all of these things are good, by the way. Vacation is good. I think God would want us to take vacation and time off. Retirement is good. It's a wonderful season that can be stewarded for his glory. But at the end of the day, none of those things in and of themselves can put back into your soul what life takes out of it. Leisure alone, time off alone, fun alone is not enough to replenish what life takes out of you. And so millennials and Gen Z, are there any of us in here? Okay, kind of, I think this is like our young section right here I'm picking up. Okay. (laughs) So so I'm going to talk with with you guys for a, a quick second. Can we chat? So our two generations, I'm a millennial, we have more leisure time than any generation before us, certainly more than the boomers had and more than the greatest generation had. We have more leisure, and yet our generation is more plagued by anxiety. We are more medicated. We are more depressed. We are more restless. And so that simple formula, the way that the world defines rest is not working. It's not just a matter of, oh, have more time, do what you want, make your own life, your own schedule, and you will be satisfied, you will be full. We have found as our two generations that that is simply not true. And so leisure alone is not enough to fill your soul. There's this really interesting documentary where they follow the lives of these wealthy kids who grow up with extravagant wealth. And they're the kind of kids, the East Coast, you know, um, during spring break, they're at the Hamptons partying it up. And um, one of these kids gets his first job. I mean, just picture this trust fund kid. He's had everything handed to him. And now for the first time, he's going to enter the workforce. And as you're watching the documentary, you're thinking, oh, he's going to crash and burn. 
he's going to last two days, right? Wrong. What actually happens is this kid realizes he loves to work. That given the opportunity, all this partying and just kind of existing without a purpose, aimless, did not satisfy him. So there's this powerful moment in the documentary where he says, for the first time in my life, I realized that I actually like to work. I like to contribute. I like to do something with my life. And no one had ever given me a chance to discover that. And so here's the takeaway. Sometimes we're tired because we're busy. Other times we're tired because we're lazy. It's actually spiritual aimlessness, whether you're a workaholic or you're just kicking it. Either way, it's draining to your soul. And Jesus offers a better way. Jesus actually wants us to work. If you notice in the passage, he says, take my yoke. And that's a farming metaphor. That is a a tool. In other words, Jesus says, get out into my fields and, and be about my work. I have good work for you to do. And sometimes busyness is a sign that we're about God's business. Sometimes busyness is a sign that we're actually doing what God wants us to do. It's not always a bad thing. And we all have Um, different bandwidth. We all have limits, and we have to know how God has wired us and live according to that. And for me, it might look different than for you. You might be able to do way more. You might be able to handle way more than I can handle, and that's great. God will use you how he's designed you. But here's the thing. None of us really have the power to change our day-to-day lives, our work, our kids, our grandkids, our jobs, that stuff is just put into our lives and and we don't have the power, most of us, to change that. And the rest that Jesus offers meets us in the midst of our lives. And resting doesn't always mean doing less. Sometimes it means following Jesus differently. And so I think this morning you might walk away thinking, okay, there's some stuff that I need to change in my schedule, and that's great. But I think actually what God may want to do even more than have us change our schedules is to expose those things that keep us from going to him when we're tired. He might want to expose those ways that we go looking for rest in places that can never give it. And so let's get into it. At the heart of This passage, at the heart of the message, there are two ways that we're going to define rest. What is it? It's two things. First, it's experiencing Jesus' heart. And secondly, it's taking Jesus' yoke. It's experiencing his heart, and it's taking on his yoke. Charles Spurgeon says that this passage is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus shows us his whole heart where he talks about his own heart. So if Jesus was on social media, and I have some serious questions, if he would be, but if Jesus had a a profile, what would his bio say? I think we would think more of his titles. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of David. He is Lord. But what does this passage say? Look in verse 29. Jesus says about his own heart, the core of who he is, he says, I am gentle and what? 
and humble in heart or lowly in heart. I am gentle and I am humble. A.W. Tozer famously said that whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. When you hear the name of Jesus and, and when you think of him, what comes into your mind? If only this phrase, gentle and humble, is what we thought of every time we think of him. But I would imagine that if you're like me, that's not what comes into mind. See, some of us grew up in homes where love was withheld, used to manipulate. Love had to be earned. It was a privilege that you achieved by doing things. And and some of you grew up in homes where it didn't matter what you did, it was never enough. And you tried so hard to earn the approval of your parents and to earn their love, and you just, you couldn't do it. And then maybe some of us grew up in homes where you were affirmed when you did good things, but then it became this performance, and you felt like you just had to keep performing, keep doing, keep succeeding, so that you could keep that steady stream of love coming into your life. And so we carry this hurt and this suspicion that if that's how people look at us, if that's how the people in our lives treat us, then that is also how Jesus looks at us. And this passage just steps in and says that's not who he is. C.S. Lewis says that there was this schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. And he replied that as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who was always snooping around to see if anyone's enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. How do you see God? If Jesus was standing right in front of you right now, what would he say to you? For many of us, we think of him as just this taskmaster. He'd say, yeah, you failed there. Like, come on, you got to pick up the pace. Let's go. I need more from you. You dropped the ball there. I know what you did then, and you should have done this, and shame on you. More, more, more. And, and that's the voice that we hear, and, and, and that's the voice that we imagine coming from our, our Savior. But let me ask you this. If all Jesus wants from you is productivity, if all Jesus wants from you is results, then why did God design you and I to be unconscious for one-third of our lives? Laying on our beds, eyes closed, unaware, unable to produce anything, just slobbering on our pillows. God designed us to spend a third of our lives unconscious. God himself rested on the seventh day, and then he commanded his people to do the same on every seventh day. Do no work, produce nothing, rest in me, enjoy the good creation that I've given you, be with your family, hit the pause button. That is the heart of God. And this is the gospel that God did everything for you before he asked for anything from you. I'll say that again. God did everything for you before he ever asked for anything from you. And we reverse this order because that's how our world works. We have to earn it. We have to do enough. We have to be enough. And God says, you are enough. 
as my son and my daughter. A number of years ago, I was working for a church, and we had two morning services. And after the first one, Emily pulls me aside and she says, hey, get in the car. I'm going to take you somewhere. I was like, what are you talking about? I can't leave. I have responsibilities. We have another service. She's like, no, it's good. Get in the car. I have a surprise for you. Let's go. And so I very tentatively get in the car and we start pulling out. And then I see my boss, who is the pastor of the church. And and he starts walking towards the car as we're about to leave the parking lot. And I have this moment of panic, like, oh, no. Is he going to be mad that I'm leaving on, in the middle of a Sunday morning? And so I put my window down, and he comes up to the car. And then this huge smile just comes over his face. And he just looks at us, and he's like, have fun, guys. Get out of here. And in that moment, my fear and my insecurity that he was going to be angry that we were doing this fun thing totally changed, and I realized, oh, he, he's not just excited when I achieve things. He's not just excited when I carry weight at the church. He's excited when I rest. His joy includes the times when I'm not producing, running, striving, but when I am just being. And I think for some of you, God just wants to have that eye-to-eye moment where the window comes down and he walks up and he just says, it's okay to rest. I've built you for this. And I can offer you rest unlike anything that the world can offer you, but you have to accept it. This passage is an invitation. It says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. We read right over that, but did you catch that? Your tiredness actually draws Jesus to you. Your weariness doesn't repel him, it draws him. He says, no, if you are tired, that's what qualifies you to come toward me. When you rest in me, that brings a smile to my face, not a finger pointed at you. And this is the heart of Jesus. He is humble and he is gentle. And so Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he's using this popular image from his day where farmers would attach this big wooden frame to a giant animal like an ox or something and it would pull a heavy load. And what's interesting is teachers in his day would use that same metaphor, and they would tell their students, be yoked to me. And it it was a way of saying to their students, go everywhere I go. Give me your total commitment. I want you to follow me and lay down everything else in your life so that you can be my disciple. Be yoked to me. And that sounds really intense to us as modern people. And Satan loves to prey on this fear we have of losing our freedom. And so he'll whisper things to us like, yeah, see, Jesus wants to take your freedom. Jesus wants to lay this heavy burden on you that's going to strangle the fun out of your life. And I was reading an article this week where someone said, you know what the devil's favorite question to ask is? And you know what it was? It was this, how much will it cost to follow Jesus? How much 
will I have to pay? How much will I have to give up? And what's fascinating is Jesus himself tells us to ask that question as a way to be responsible and to consider the cost of following him. So Satan takes that question that Jesus would have us ask and then he twists it and he uses it to produce fear like, man, you are going to look crazy if you follow Jesus. You are not going to make any money following Jesus. You're not going to get to have fun following Jesus. Every time I'm watching a TV show and a Christian is in the show, I just immediately cringe because I, I think, great, how are they going to make me look stupid this time? How are they going to make Christians look narrow-minded, ridiculous, hypocritical, evil, <laughs> whatever it is? And so and Satan loves that stuff. He loves to take little jabs at us. And if he can get people to laugh at us or hate us, suddenly that starts affecting how we view ourselves and we start thinking like, man, I want to be crazy about Jesus. Can I just be a, a normal person and follow Jesus? I don't want to like, give up everything. We start to downplay the cost of following him. And Jesus says, no, take my yoke. I want everything that you have. But here's what we don't hear often is that the cost of following Jesus is great, but the return is greater. What we don't hear is, man, you don't have to take his yoke, but it's the only yoke that won't eventually crush you. What we don't often hear is that living without Jesus is not a free life, is not a burdenless life, but actually Every single human on the planet is living for something. There is something that gets them out of bed. There is something that makes their heart just come to life. There is something that they will sacrifice for. There is something that they will die for. Every single human on the planet has something like that in their lives. And Jesus is saying, man, if that thing is not me, I'm telling you the weight will crush you. I am the only yoke that if you take on my yoke is light and easy. David Foster Wallace, who is not a Christian, but a phenomenal writer, he says these words. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. If you worship money and things, you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Powerful words. Jesus invites the weary and the broken, which is honestly all of us, to varying degrees in different seasons. And he says, come to me. I am the only yoke that will not crush you. And I think we know this as Christians, but how do we actually do it? Even this passage, it's like one of the most quoted passages. It's the one that you throw on, you know, pictures on your stitch it on pillows, make it your life verse. There's all kinds of books and sermons on it. You probably could have recited this verse when I started. So how do we live in rest? 
I'm just going to close with two things. The first is to take an inventory of your intimacy with Jesus. Take an inventory of your relationship with him. One thing in just the craziness of life and with kids that Emily and I have had to do is we, we recognize that if we want to have dates, we have to schedule them. And so it's every other Wednesday for us at 7 p.m., whether the kids are screaming or whatever, like we leave them in, in good hands and we get out of there because we recognize if we don't do that, it's never going to happen. And it's a subtle shift that I think happens for all of us, but, you know, think about the things you do every day. You brush your teeth, I hope. You eat. You drink water. You dress yourself. I mean, we couldn't imagine a day where we don't do those things. And yet when it comes to being with Jesus, the, the, the rest giver of our souls, it's like he gets pushed to the side and we think, okay, I'll get to that, I'll do that later. And before we know it, it it's just not happening. And that is the first thing that the enemy will steal from you and it's the first thing that your own flesh will neglect is time with Jesus. And so, I invite you this week just to think about what are the rhythms that you've put in place. And I, I, I think the simplest to, way to get at this is just to say, know the time and the place that you will meet with him. Ambiguity kills intentionality. Have your Bible, your journal, whatever it is, in the same place and say, no matter what, this is like brushing my teeth, drinking water every day, I will meet with him and just see what he starts to do. And I realize that some of us are already doing that and you're still feeling weary and burdened. And I would say, Jesus knows that. And he will honor that time that you give to him. Try a new posture. Sometimes it's a matter of just letting our physical bodies lead our hearts. And so maybe you get on your knees. When was the last time you just got on your knees and said, Jesus, I'm here, I'm overwhelmed. Start practicing for eternity in the idea that every knee will bow to him. Maybe it's the fact that you're slouching in your chair and half asleep, what, whatever it is. But God promises to meet you in those times. And so what does it look like for you to revisit those rhythms of intimacy that you have with him? And then I want to end just with a word of encouragement, which is that rest happens wherever you are. Whatever season you're in. See, we think that there's going to be some dramatic encounter with God or, or some huge window that's opened in our schedule where uh, I can finally breathe, when life won't feel so crazy, where I won't be as distracted, where I won't be as angry or sad overwhelmed and for all those waiting for that moment it comes when they die <laughs> chances are life is not going to slow down but this is the beautiful thing is that it is no accident where you are today God has placed you where you are he's given you the season that you're in whether you're middle-aged in your career retired with grandkids single, 
ready to mingle, whatever, whatever your phase of life is, God has placed you there and he offers you rest. And Jesus' invitation is always to come, all who are weary and heavy laden. And what's beautiful is in the scriptures we see that God's rest comes in these unexpected pockets like Elijah on the run for his life and God just says, hey, you need to take a nap under this tree and then I'm going to feed you. Or Jesus sleeping in the midst of a storm because his body is so fatigued from healing and teaching and he just conks out in the back of a boat while his disciples are freaking out in the most unexpected environments of chaos. Like we just sang, out of chaos, God brings order. Well, in the midst of chaos, God brings rest. And so, yes, the kids are crazy. Yes, you're really lonely. Yes, you keep sinning in that same way. And guilt keeps you from coming to God. And Jesus says, come, come. I will give you rest. You don't have to have some lightning from the sky revelation. I will give you rest in your car, in your bedroom, in your kitchen, in conversations over coffee. There was a time when I was directing a summer camp, and um, it was four weeks long, about 100 elementary kids, and it was run by probably 40 or so middle school and high school students, and I was in charge of the camp, and it was exhausting. It was so much admin. We had all these rotations and, you know, kids going from PE to math class to English to team building, and just this crazy logistical puzzle every day. And so by the end of four weeks, we were all just exhausted. But the last thing that we would do is we would take all of the student leaders, so all these middle school and high school students, and we would take them to the beach for the whole day. So we do all of that, and then we're driving home, and we're all so tired. And I'm driving this 12-passenger van, and the kids are in the back just singing their lungs out to the radio, just loud, and we're almost back to the school, my eyes are heavy, I'm sunburned, I'm exhausted. And all of a sudden, it was as if the Lord just whispered to me, hey, Will, I want you to, to look around right now. Keep your eyes on the road, but also look around. And notice what is happening right here. Look at what's around you. And I realized in that moment that most of these kids were unchurched, and they came from homes that never proclaimed the love of Jesus to them. And for four weeks, we had been doing these daily debriefs and devos with them where we're just sharing stories out of the Gospels. We're telling them about God's love for them. And here's, here's the takeaway. As fatigued as my mind was, as exhausted as my body was, my soul was full of life. And that's what it looks like to take the easy yoke of Jesus. You'll be plowing away. Your mind will be tired. Your body will be weary. But if you turn to him, if you receive from him, he will take the most mundane, tired moments of everyday life and he will just infuse your soul with rest. And the people around you are going to say, what is up with you? What is that? And you'll get to share with them, have you heard? 
Jesus offers a rest unlike any other. And when we live in that rest, it's the most beautiful way of living possible. It's the most free way of living possible. And so this week, um, what would it look like if we lived in that rest? Let's find out. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are our Savior, Lord, that you are God, that you are our Master. Lord, I also thank you that you are the great rest giver. Lord, I ask that your Spirit would, through this passage and through the word spoken, um, bring rest to our souls. Lord, for those who are really weary in this season, Lord. Um, Would they accept your invitation to come and just to be? Lord, that you're not looking for something from them, but that you have done everything for them. That Jesus, when you went to the cross, you took on the burdens of the entire world so that you could lift those burdens from us, both the burdens that we have caused from our own mistakes and our own sin and the burdens that have been unfairly laid on us, you say the same, come all who are weary and I will give you rest for your souls. So Jesus, would you teach us how to rest in this distracted age? Would you breathe life onto our working and our playing And turn it into something that draws us to you. Lord, that we can enjoy just being with you in your presence. And experiencing rest unlike anything available anywhere else. So thank you for your gentle, humble heart, Jesus. We love you and we pray this in your name. And everyone said, Amen. amen.